Hi, my name is Brad Constantine, and this is a podcast of the New Testament. I'll be using as the text the King James Version, along with the Joseph Smith Translation. Although this is not an official recording of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, every effort's been made to be as doctrinally accurate as possible. I'll also be using quotes from general authorities of the Church, the Apostles and Prophets, and BYU professors and others, and uh, every word out of the Scriptures themselves. So if you're ready for a really detailed analysis of the New Testament, you've come to the right place. Welcome. Hi there, welcome back. This will be for 2 Corinthians chapter 12. The heading reads, Paul caught up to the third heaven. The Lord gives men weaknesses that they may triumph over them. Paul manifests the signs of an apostle. Verse 1, It is not expedient for me, doubtless to glory, I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago. What he means here is that this is about himself, and he's talking that this happened 14 years ago. Whether in the body I cannot tell, or whether out of the body I cannot tell, God knoweth such an one caught up to the third heaven. Then he says, still contrasting himself to the false apostles, I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. And here, surprisingly, the account suddenly shifts to understatement. After a dozen or more examples of dramatic persecution, we might expect a half a dozen episodes of dramatic revelation just to drive his point home. Instead, Paul's awe, humility, and gratitude for having received those revelations turn him from aggressiveness to reverence, even reticence. The fact that he describes the vision as happening to a man in Christ is such an evidence of that humility, though he is obviously speaking of himself. The passage makes no sense if it isn't his own revelation, since he's reminding the Corinthians of his credentials contrasted to those of the false apostles. That was by Richard Anderson. Elder Packer said, as students, there are some questions that we could not in propriety ask. One question of this type I am asked occasionally, usually by someone who is curious, is, have you seen him? That is a question that I have never asked of another. I have not asked that question of my brethren in the Council of the Twelve, thinking that it would be so sacred and so personal that one would have to have some special inspiration, indeed some authorization, even to ask it. Though I have not asked that question of others, I have heard them answer it, but not when they were asked. I have heard one of my brethren declare, I know from experiences too sacred to relate, that Jesus is the Christ. I have heard another testify, I know that God lives, I know that the Lord lives, and more than that, I know the Lord. I repeat, they have answered this question not when they were asked, but under the promptings of the Spirit, on sacred occasions when the Spirit beareth record. There are some things just too sacred to discuss, not secret, but sacred, not to be discussed, but to be harbored and protected and regarded with the deepest of reverence. There are many difficult questions, including some that we will not be able to answer, and many things are to be taken on faith. As a teacher, therefore, do not let difficult questions create difficult problems for you or for those you teach. Elder McConkie said, Some truths and experiences are not lawful for man to utter in the sense that it is not permitted or appropriate to speak of them except as led and directed by the Holy Spirit. Verse 3, And I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell, God knoweth. Sometimes prophets go into trances in connection with the receipt of visions, that is, they are so completely overshadowed by the Spirit that to all outward appearances normal bodily functions are suspended. Such was the case with Balaam when he saw the coming of Christ and the triumph of Israel. Peter fell into a trance when he received the vision commanding him to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Paul was in a trance when the Lord came to him with the command to leave Jerusalem and carry the message of salvation to the Gentiles. A similar experience happened to the prophet Joseph Smith in connection with the first vision. He was not in control of all his bodily powers when the Father and the Son appeared to him. When I came to myself again, I found myself lying on my back looking up into heaven, he said. When the light had departed, I had no strength, but soon recovering in some degree, I went home. 
Similarly, when the three Nephites were caught up into heaven and saw and heard unspeakable things, they were transfigured. Whether they were in the body or out of the body, they could not tell, for it did seem unto them like a transfiguration of them, that they were changed from this body of flesh into an immortal state, that they could behold the things of God. Paul had a similar experience, as also did Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon. Verse 4. How that he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable or ineffable words, which it is not lawful or possible or permitted for a man to utter. Paradise is different from the third heaven. Notice he's mentioning in this verse that he went to, that he saw paradise. In verse 1, Paul promised to discuss visions and revelations, both in plural. So we may safely assume that Paul is speaking of two different visions, one of the celestial kingdom and another of spirit paradise. The difference is not hard for Latter-day Saints to comprehend. With only one exception in the scriptures, the word paradise refers to the spirit world. The Grand Richards noted, from this scripture it is evident that paradise is not the first, second, or third heaven. Verse 5, Of such an one will I glory, yet of myself I will not glory, but in mine infirmities. For though I would desire to glory, I shall not be a fool, for I will say the truth, but now I forbear, lest any man should think of me above that which he seeth of me, or that he heareth of me. And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure." So what is this uh, third, or what is this thorn in the flesh? Uh, we'll, we'll discuss that here in a second. In talking about weaknesses here, um, or the buffetings, it says in Ether, And if men come unto me, I will show unto them their weakness. I give unto men weakness, which means mortality, that they may be humble. And my, my grace is sufficient for all men that humble themselves before me. For if they humble themselves before me and have faith in me, then will I make weak things become strong unto them. Behold, I will show unto the Gentiles their weakness, and I will show unto them that faith, hope, and charity bringeth unto me the fountain of all righteousness. Verse 8, For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. So what is the thorn in the flesh that he has? No one really knows what Paul's thorn in the flesh was. All we know for sure is that whatever it was, it kept Paul humble and forced him to his knees. His inabilities and his impotence in the face of this particular challenge were ever before him. I rather think that when Paul states that he besought the Lord thrice for the removal of the thorn, he is not describing merely three prayers, but instead three seasons of prayer, extended periods of wrestling and laboring in the Spirit for a specific blessing that never came. Indeed, as he suggests, another kind of blessing came, a closeness, a sensitivity, an acquaintance with deity, a sanctified strength that came through pain and suffering. It was up against the wall of faith when shorn of self-assurance and naked in, in his extremity and his frightening fin finitude that a mere mortal received that enabling power we know as the grace of Christ. As the Savior explained to Moroni, when we acknowledge and confess our weakness, not just our specific weaknesses, our individual sins, but our weakness, our mortal limitation, and submit unto him, we transform weakness into strength. That was by Robert Millet. Indeed, some thorns in the flesh call forth prayers of great intensity, supplications and pleading that are certainly out of the ordinary. Such vexations of the soul are not typical not part of our daily prayer life, just as it would be a mistake to suppose that Jacob or Enos wrestled with God in prayer in every, every day so you and I are not expected to involve ourselves with the same tenacity to be involved in the same bending of the soul on a regular basis. But now and then, in the eternal scheme of things, we must pass through the fire in order to come through life purified and refined and thus prepared to dwell one day in everlasting burnings with God and Christ and holy beings. Again, that was Robert Millet. There is circumstantial evidence in the scriptures to support the idea that Paul's thorn in the flesh may have been poor eyesight. 
In Galatians 4, it says, Where is then the blessedness ye spake of? For I bear you record that if it had been possible, ye would have plucked out your own eyes and have given them to me. For now we see, and then in 1 Corinthians he says, For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face now I know in part, but then shall I know even as I am known. In Acts 23, he he. he may not have recognized the, the high priest. Remember that uh, he, he's talking to the high priest and didn't know it. In, in uh, Acts 23, it says, Then Paul said unto him, God shall smite thee, thou whited wall, for sittest thou to judge me after the law, and commandest me to be smitten contrary to the law? And they that stood by said, Revilest thou God's high priest? Then said Paul, I wist not, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, Thou shalt not speak evil of the ruler of thy people. So he didn't know that it was the high priest, maybe because he couldn't see him adequately. Of this, Brigham Young said, We find a pure spirit inhabiting the tabernacle of the creature which is always prompting the individual to good, to virtue, to truth, and holiness, all of which emanate from this, from that source of purity from which this spirit came. And here, the evil that came through the transgression that is in this tabernacle is warring with this pure spirit. It seeks to overcome it and is striving with all its power to bring that, this spirit into subjection to bring this spirit into subjection. This is the warfare which Paul refers to when speaking of the thorn in the flesh, which is no more or less than the spirit contending against the flesh and the flesh against the spirit. Verse 9, And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. James E. Faust said, Oh, let me finish the verse first. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. In other words, trust in the Lord in spite of our weaknesses. James E. Faust said, Here then is a great truth. In the, in the pain, the agony, and the heroic endeavors of life, we pass through a refiner's fire, and the insignificant and the unimportant in our lives can melt away like dross and make our faith bright, intact, and strong. In this way, the divine image can be mirrored from the soul. This pain is part of the purging toll exacted on some to become acquainted with God. In the agonies of life, we seem to listen better to the faint godly whisperings of the divine shepherd. Into every life there come the painful, despairing days of adversity and buffeting. There seems to be a full measure of anguish, sorrow, and often heartbreak for everyone, including those who earnestly seek to do right and be faithful. The Apostle Paul referred to his own challenge, and lest I should be exalted above measure, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. The thorns that prick, that stick in the flesh, that hurt, these often change lives that may seem robbed of significance and hope. This change comes about through a refining process that often seems cruel and hard. In this way, the soul can become like soft clay in the hands of the master in building lives of faith, usefulness, beauty, and strength. For some, the refiner's fire causes a loss of belief and faith in God, but those with eternal perspective understand that such refining is part of the perfection process. That's not always easy to think of in the pro- in the, at the time you're going through the persecution or the affliction, huh? But it's something that we just need to hang on to sometimes. Verse 10, Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. I am become a fool in glorying, Ye have compelled me, for I ought to have been commended of you, for in nothing am I behind the very chiefest apostles, though I be nothing. Robert Millet said, As you know, Paul was sadly required to spend a significant amount of time defending his apostolic calling. Having been a zealous Pharisee and even a persecutor of the Christians before his conversion, and not having been one of the original witnesses of the resurrection of Christ, he felt the need to testify to his detractors that his call had indeed come from God. 
Verse 12, Truly the signs of an apostle were wrought among, all, or among you in all patience, in signs and wonders, and mighty deeds. For what is it wherein ye were inferior to other churches, except it be that I myself was not burdensome to you? Forgive me this wrong. Behold the time... Behold, the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be burdensome to you, for I seek not yours, but you, for the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but for the but the parents for the children. So it sounds like uh, in verse 14 here he's saying the third time. That must be the third visit that he made to Corinth. And I will very gladly spend and be spent for you, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. But be it so, I did not burden you. Nevertheless, being crafty, I call you with guile. I caught you with guile. Did I make a gain of you by any of them whom I sent unto you? Notice in verse 16. Let me just go back to a minute. Uh, or verse 15. I, uh, let's see, which one is it? I love you, the less I be loved. So sometimes we might love those that we serve and not be loved by them. Um, sometimes they don't even know that we love them. So anyway, don't be offended. Uh, verse 17, did I make a gain of you by any of them whom I sent unto you? I desired Titus, and with him I sent a brother. Did Titus make a gain of you? Walked we not in the same spirit? Walked we not in the same steps? Again, think ye that we excuse ourselves unto you. We speak before God in Christ, but we do all things, dearly beloved, for your edifying. For I fear, lest when I come, I shall not find you such as I would, and that I should that I shall be found unto you such as ye would not, lest there be debates, envyings, wraths, strifes, backbitings, whisperings, swellings, tumults, and lest when I come again my God will humble me among you, and that I shall bewail many which have sinned already, and have not repented of the uncleanness and fornication and lasciviousness which they have committed. So that's the end of the chapter, and we will see you next time. So what was the thorn in the flesh? Well, we don't know for sure, but it might have been just poor eyesight. I can relate to that. Anyway, see you later. Bye.